You are now listening to The Secret Life of a Grad Student. I'm Megan. I'm Laura, and we are two grad students who want to share the untold stories of graduate students past and present. episode is a bit special. We decided to share more of Mina Bissell's interview. In a previous episode, we focused more about her family influence, the choice of science, and grad school. However, Mina had much more to share, and we collected them in a bonus episode. In this episode, Mina talked to us about Iran before the revolution, her family's situation during the Shah occupancy. And then she's telling us how she fell in love to English literature in college. And finally, how difficult it was for her to integrate the prestigious Melvin Calvin group at UC Berkeley during her postdoc. So we are starting this episode with the history of Iran told by Mina Bissell. It's fascinating. I came from a very educated family. And people have a lot of... Um, of um, ideas or a lot of impressions of what Iran is and and they're all wrong <laughs> because mm-hmm. Iran is uh, the same as Persia and some Americans even don't know this and they have been there for 5,000 years and they have their epigenome is wrapped around the history and what is really important more than anything else uh, in Iran has been achievement and not money. Mm-hmm. So education was always one of the biggest things, even though the country, of course, was a very class society in those days, under the Shah even. And uh, we had, uh, you know, very poor people in the villages, uneducated maybe. Uh, and uh, very educated people who um, the tradition was that the middle class or upper middle class, they actually send their children to France in the early days and then later to England and, and U.S. I, I read that your father has a PhD from France. Or, yes. 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 As a lawyer? He was a lawyer. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And all my aunts were one way or the other, except for one, um, uh, were educated. My aunt had a thing of Ecole Normale, no, uh, of Sorbonne. She she had a, a PhD from Sorbonne. Um, the other uh, uncles were judges or lawyers or, you know. Only one aunt was uh, a housewife, but her housewife was sort of a very different uh, from what you would imagine in that, of course, they had servants and they had people who lived with them and they cooked and did. So the wife was, you know, if, if she wanted to, could have a literary salon or could have, you know, it was, it was a very, very good childhood for me. I was very, um, very fortunate. Yeah. Um, especially with my mom, because, and my father too, for one thing, um, father came a little bit later for me to understand him, but because he was more distant, he, want, he, he was into politics, mm-hmm. 
and um, but he he had a very keen sense of justice. So what he would do is that if um, if uh, uh, there were a case or a situation where somebody very powerful was suppressing somebody else, my father would always take the side of the of the other one. And when uh, when people began to um, you know rise against the Shah and stuff, he um, he was probably would have, he actually ended up defending one of these hoodlums who mm -hmm. were who were doing the coup d'etat. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise it looked as if they were going to go into jail and get killed. So he he sort of instilled, I mean, without, without knowing it, the family <clears throat> uh, background was just very educated. My whole mother's side were not, were more kind of like ordinary middle class or upper middle class with some connection to the old court. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but as I always say, Iranians have as many old princesses. I wasn't a princess at all, but you know, they have, they have as many Persian cats. So they yeah. just, you know, anybody could claim whatever. <laughs> But the the people who had any kind of royalty really were not the regime at that time because the Pahlavi, the Shah and his father were only two. The father was a foot soldier and he rose in ranks and he did a coup d'etat and threw away the Rajar dynasty and um, and uh, he and the uh, his sister who was a little bit older was his twin sister, the Shah. The twin sister really was the one who ruled uh, when the Shah came because he was young, he was a playboy, he didn't know what was going on, and she was ruthless, literally ruthless. And um, at one point, uh, um, my father's friend told us this story that he was, he was very interesting. A lot of Iranian culture, Middle Eastern culture, culture uh, say with my uncles even or other people, people talk about themselves. Oh, I did this and I did that and I did whatever. My father wasn't like that at all. He was a real exception. He was amazing. And uh, <clears throat> and um, he um, was chosen to be the Minister of Justice and he was supposed to go and meet the Shah's sister. Mm -hmm. And they all had to bow and kiss her hand. Yeah. And he wouldn't do it. So he bent, but didn't kiss his hand, her hand. And the next day he heard that they are withdrawing the job. <laughs> he didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> and he never told us this story. We heard it from other people. Yeah. <laughs> so as I grew up, I had amazing respect for my father. And of course, I now have lived here so much more than I ever lived in Iran. And I haven't been back. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been back um, after the Shah fell oh, because no. um, if they because right after the Shah fell there was that coup d'etat and the religious people took over and uh, they wanted to put all the women you know I always look like this even <laughs> with my grandfather having being an Ayatollah I never even had a scarf on my head his yeah. children 
didn't have any scarf in your head. And uh, he was the most amazingly educated, thoughtful, wonderful, liberal man. And my father wanted me to go to England, but I wanted to go to U.S. And uh, he said to my father, she wants to go to the U.S., she goes to the U.S. (laughs) So your grandfather helped you a lot to go to the U.S. And and I have a letter from her that surprises all these 30 cousins. I have cousins all over, and he had 10 children. And then of those 10 children, uh, there were many, many cousins and second cousins, and they're all over the world, you know. Maybe one is still maybe in Iran or something like that, or second one, you know. But the one who was educated in France, because my uncle was the attaché of of the Iranian embassy, which they called it Persian, Persian in those days. And and, uh, she speaks very good Farsi, very good French, and very good English. And so, but she's back in Iran. And uh, she has a very lovely house, and she paints. And uh, apparently, she invites all the literary people and things like that. Mm-hmm. I ha- but I haven't been. And the reason I haven't been is partly had to do that. If anybody told me to put something on your head or yeah. cover your feet or do whatever, I would have told them go jump, and I would have yeah. gone. <laughs> so my mother basically said to my sister, to my cousin, everybody, go and come. Except me now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not coming back because you go. <laughs> so I, I, and then uh, in the in between, and when this uh, uh, this revolution, so called, came up, then they gave identity card to everybody, and then they gave to Iranian out of country a year apparently. But I had an American husband. I was studying. I didn't even know about you. I didn't have that yeah. many. <laughs> so I never had it. So you and, don't have any ID from Iran? Yeah, well, I have I the regular ID. Yeah. I don't have it. My sister has it. I know it. It takes a long time. Nina Bissell is telling a story, a memory from her childhood that is terrifying. And she recalled this memory because she remembers reading a book about Marie Curie. And she thinks that it might be when she's starting to think about science. But this memory is not at all related about science. People always ask me, when did you begin to think about science? The only thing I can say is that I read like crazy as a kid. And there was a book about Madame Curie. And uh, I read it when I was 11, I remember, because it was in a very memorable little incidence of thieves coming to our to, to steal things, and, and it, is a, it is a very strange, uh, you know, I should write this thing one of these days and make it into a movie, but, but you know, I'm too busy. <laughs> just Anyway, but, but I remember reading Madame Curie, yes. and, um, and these guys had mistaken us in our country house with another bunch of uh, women from the merchant families who wear a lot of gold. Mm-hmm. Gold this and gold that is very important for them. And uh, they had thought that I was the daughter of one of these for some reason. And so in the middle of the night, they knocked at our door. My grandmother was there, my mother was there, my cousin was there, and me. Yeah. And they, and my grandmother said, oh, let's barricade the door or whatever. Well, of course, they, yeah. Yeah, and they came in. 
And they say, where's your gold? And we're all looking at each other, what are they talking about? <laughs> and you know, it, if it were today, I'm sure we would have been dead. In the wow. US, in the US, yeah. with all the guns that go, you know, they kill people for no good reason. Because <laughs> they don't want to be recognized. These guys didn't care. I think it was a bad uh, economic time in Iran at that time. Yeah. And uh, so they um, they asked my cousin, who was a very afraid girl, She's, she was so afraid of dogs, she was so afraid of coming down from a hill. She was so, it was a tall, beautiful girl, but... So I said, I go. <laughs> and, and so they took me outside. They put a knife on my neck. And they said, now tell us, where is it? And I said, you know, I think you're mistaken. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. He came in and told my mother, you have a very smart daughter. My mom said, who the hell are you telling me? Leave. <laughs> oh, no. And for about a year, every time a noise would come, we all would be yeah, like, of course. It was it's such a bad trauma. Yeah, I haven't told this story to anybody. Okay. I mean, I did, to people interviewed. Yes, yeah. It just came out because it was very interesting. But that, because you ask about, because I remember reading uh, Madame Curie's story. Yeah. At that time, I was 11. Yeah. And I have no idea that that had anything to do with it. I even had forgotten because I was reading everything. During her period in high school, we can already discover much more about Mina Bissell personality and through her story with this professor that became a terrible enemy of Mina Bissell. And after I fell, it was much harder. But I had enough of this left that high school was easy for me. Uh, I would, I remember for some reason in my high school, we had a course, Iranians have 20 different subjects in high school, at least in those days. I think it's still like that. And the curriculum across the country is the same. That's why they can have a top student for the country. Yeah, you know? yeah I see. Yeah. And I, and we had, we were doing, so it was a branch of biology and, and uh, sociology and things like that. Then a branch for math and physics and a branch for, I don't know, something else. And, and we had logic and we had, uh, sociology and we had psychology and we had you know so uh, we had a teacher who really looked strange she almost didn't have a nose you know but she was very intelligent and very thoughtful but people always made fun of her and so she was very sensitive so she would give this course in logic the kids had no idea because they didn't come all of them from Bakar, I went to public school. I yeah. didn't go to a private school, you know. So I would stay after she left and I would explain it to the class. <laughs> so one day, so I would give her the lecture, but I would give it in a way that the kids could understand. And one day she came back, she had left something behind and she saw me standing there and writing things. On. <gasps> she became a horrible enemy of mine. Um. And we had exams, both oral and written. And uh, the, uh, the principal of school discovered that she was very biased about me. Uh -huh. And so, um, because I was getting, uh, you know, a very high mark from all the teachers and everybody. Except but, And I had a math teacher who loved me, and I had a 
physics teacher who loved me. <laughs> and they were all very nice to me. And Later on, as Mina Bissell arrived in the United States and started college, she's telling us about how she fell in love into English literature thanks to this amazing professor that she had in first year. So, but I like, you know, when I was in college, uh, I had, my high school was so good in Iran that, that chemistry was easy for me. Yes. Uh, uh, math was easy for me. So I took, um, they said that they don't let... Um, foreign students to take the first year uh, English literature because at Bryn Mawr, it was very difficult. Mm -hmm. You had to read a book during the week and you had to write an essay over the weekend and you had to hand it at 8 a.m. Monday. And I hardly knew the words. And the first book they gave me was Faulkner. Faulkner. I mean, even Americans can't read Faulkner. This was a big, <laughs> longest thing called The Bear. Where this, and, and actually, now that I read it, it's a magnificent story. But it was a story where it had no full stops. It had no, it just, oh. the whole thing would go. I mean, the paragraph wouldn't finish. <laughs> yeah. Know? So I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Then, um, but nevertheless, I had the best, most amazing English teacher and she really is in fact is in my Wilson Award uh, thing I always mention her name she's now 97 she's blind and she still is writing books by dictating to her friends who take her things she's you know she has had a whole lot of of ventures she had had uh, you know she she only sees a tiny bit of of, uh, but I used to babysit for her when, when she when we were at Brimar because the professor, her husband was a professor, and they had not given her a professorship. She was an instructor, and it was very complicated. And then she had said, "I never." She had masters and had many books and was so much more capable than her husband. <laughs> and um, and her books just are are classic now. Her name was Anne Bertoff. And she was the most amazing. So she would ask the student to go to her house after they write their thing, and she would go over the papers with them. And, and so I remember that she would bring my my uh, essays in, and she would say, look, Mina looked up these things, and you still do this one wrong. With you. So one time I wrote an essay for one of the books, and um, I came back to her door crying because on the side of this yellow, and I didn't know how to type. I had never learned how to type. I still don't know how to type, so I do this for the computer. Yeah, (laughs) I never wanted to learn how to type because I said, I would have my own secretary. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, the final part of the bonus episode. We discover the full story of Mina Bissell when she integrated the Melvin Calvin Group at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab as a postdoc. Mina just moved to the West Coast, and she's determined to stay and learn in Berkeley. On the other hand, Melvin Calvin, whom I ended up being very good friends with, but he was so powerful and so difficult that children, her children wouldn't go to his funeral because he was so, you know, and he had won the Nobel Prize, he looked like Picasso, with his big head and blazing eyes and... I went and gave a lecture in their 
uh, when I was three months pregnant because he had one of the people who had worked with him got interested in glucose metabolism in animals because he was you doing glucose metabolism in plants mm -hmm. and how the plants fix the glucose. And they had developed models of running it and I wanted to do it for animals using his model. Mm -hmm. So I went there working with his former graduate student who was one of his, he had an entourage of about eight people, eight professors, and they all were doing different things, and they were all different things that he was interested in, and they all were afraid of him. And all the good people who would come as a so-called so faculty to work with him would leave if they were smart, or they would, they would shut up because he was very, you know, he just didn't even know a lot of things, but he had a lot of imagination and a lot of whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so here comes this lady, and, um, and I, was, I was very amused by him, because we would go on Fridays at 8 o'clock, because that's when he wanted to have the conference. <laughs> and somebody had to get him and give the talk of, of this, of these, you know, one, I, so it were either the guys who had been with him or the students and whatever. So I became, uh, I had gone to work with this other guy who was under him, who was a very sweet guy, and he protected me a lot. It was really funny because I would make him very angry because I would go on the, on the board and uh, would try to say something before I could even start. He would say, it can't be like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was just impossible. He would say, what are you saying? It doesn't make sense. And so I used to say, here are the, I used to work with chick embryos, um, trying to find out what viruses deals with them and these oncogenic viruses that is one is very famous who people got the first oncogene from it is called Ras sarcomavirus, and if you watch my TED talk, you see what I, what I, uh, so this guy at 1911 had discovered that there was a virus that caused a tumor in the chicken. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and he would say, the virus jumps in and out of the DNA and does, you know, but you know, the things like reverse, in a way he was kind of right. But he really wouldn't read the literature or would, you know. Yeah. So every time I would go up there, he would say, I would show these fibroblasts from the tendon and then fibroblasts that had virus. And he would say, I can't see a difference. I can't see a difference. And it would just make me so angry. So one day, <laughs> one day I decided, what am I going to do? So I made two sets of, <laughs> of talk. One, I had two normal and normal. And malignant and malignant. Then I had, I had um, uh, one that was one normal and one malignant. Yeah. So I went up there and I put the two normal. Yeah. And they kind of, you know, they were identical. And he had been always telling me that normal and malignant were identical yeah. because you couldn't see a difference. So he started la shouting from the end of the room. They are the same. I keep telling you. So and the kids who were working with me, they really just didn't know what to do because they realized what I was going to do and how much I was going to get myself into trouble. <laughs> so, so I went up there and put these two, and he screamed, 
And, and then I showed the picture of one normal, of one malignant. Yeah. And I said, do you see the difference now? Yeah. And he was furious. He I left bet. the room. And his secretary, who liked me, came saying, Mina, you caused trouble again. What are you doing? Why do you do this? So he just would not, every time I would get up, he would give me a hard time. So one day, I finally decided, this is ridiculous. I got to do something about this. So everybody had left the room, and I think he had heart uh, tummy problem. <laughs> He was just standing at the end of the thing, sort of scratching. So I went to the man and I said, Dr. Calvin, can I talk to you for a second? And uh, he said, yes. And I said, you know, I have something to tell you. I think you are the most brilliant man. I think that's what he wanted to hear because I was a competition for him. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the only one who, had, who would not listen to him, you know, and yeah. I would stand my ground. Others would leave. Say, yeah. you know, the guys who say, who needs it? And they were right, but I had no choice. Because I had a baby. My husband was professor at UCSF. Uh, we had this house that we were trying to fix, and I didn't want to go, you know. Yeah. He didn't want to move at that time. I didn't, you know. Yes. So I had to somehow make Challenge him. him. I used to come home and cry because I just didn't know what to do. Yeah. You know? And so what happened is, um, so I said, I want to talk to you. And he said, yes. And I said, you know, I have something to tell you because everybody calls you Dr. Calvin. Everybody's afraid of you. But I want you to know that I think you are one of the most intelligent men I know. I think you're great. You're wonderful, but you're not God. So I said, look, there are a couple of things I know in biology that you may not know. And if you want to disagree with me, why can't we have a discussion rather than argument? And he was just stunned, absolutely stunned. That's all it took. Yeah. And he became, because he realized that I was one of the few who could actually reason with him. Yeah. And I was clever. I must have understood that I first had to tell him that I think he's very intelligent, he's wonderful, I'm not trying to compete with him, <laughs> you know. So he became such a supporter of mine, and that was one of the most wonderful things that ever happened to me. And I remember that when I had done this postdoc thing that I wanted to do with him, I went they were interested in glucose metabolism that I was doing in yeah. my postdoc with another guy at Berkeley campus. So I went and gave them a talk on glucose metabolism. I was three months pregnant and I didn't tell anybody. So they hired me and they said, come. So I went to go claim my job when I was seven months pregnant and then I was like this. Oh uh, yeah. I was wearing a big black dress. He was coming down from the step. He looked at me, he said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm in a vessel. I came here and gave you a talk. He said, turn around and go home. We wow. do not take pregnant women in the lab. Oh, my God. And, um, and of course, we were using also radioactivity. So in a way... That makes sense. In a way, I don't think he had that in mind. He just, you know... Yeah. Just... <laughs> so I just looked at him, turned around, went home, and cried. And I had no <laughs> idea what to do. <laughs> 
Anyway, it was very difficult. So then I had my baby. And so so Albasan would say, Mina, hide, hide. Melvin is showing up. So I would go to my office next to his office and would not go for coffee while I was pregnant. And I would write in the back of my um, lab coat because I was like this. <sighs> and we were living in San Francisco at that time. Uh, and and uh, I was traveling on the Bay Bridge and people were worried that I would, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I had, uh, so they would ask, why's the baby? So I would turn around, I had written September 10 to 13. Well, my son was born on September 13. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening The Secret Life of a Graduate Student. It was a special episode, the bonus of Mina Bissell interview. Next week, Megan and I are starting a new series, The Life Balance, and we will tell you why we think life balance in grad school matters. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.